Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to the second season of Case Studies in Treating Ocular Surface Disease. Today, Dr. Chris Starr leads a new expert panel of Drs. Priya Gupta, Douglas DeVries, and Leslie O'Dell as they deliberate on a myriad of interesting cases across the ocular surface spectrum. In our first case, Dr. Priya Gupta discusses a patient with foreign body sensation who remains symptomatic after a combination of antibiotics and artificial tears. Excellent. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for participating and being here for this case series entitled The Treatment of OSD or Ocular Surface Disease. We've got an esteemed panel as always, Priya Gupta, Leslie O'Dell, and Doug DeVries to discuss some very fascinating cases from each of their personal practices. And I'm just simply here to kind of wrangle everybody in and manage this to some degree and moderate and, and hopefully add something of uh, value <laughs> to the proceedings. But uh, to get things started, let's uh, introduce Priya Gupta, and Priya is going to talk about an, a case of MGD from her practice. Priya, take it away. Thank you so much, Chris. So um, uh, we're going to start by going over um, a case, and then um, uh, hopefully all of you will add your insights. So um, this is a 45-year-old woman, and uh, she complains of you know typical symptoms, chronic foreign body sensation fluctuating vision when she reads. Um, she's been treated with uh, cyclosporin for about nine months and she's had some mild relief, but she still remains symptomatic. She also uses artificial tears, lid scrubs and compresses, and she does have a history of rosacea. Her clinical exam, there's um, you know, an altered tear film uh, with a reduced tear breakup time is four seconds. Um, on her lid margin, there's fine talonjectasias, even some early, um, maybe not ulceration, but breakdown um, of that lid margin, um, a number of capped glands, and certainly some atrophy and mybography. She also has an abnormal uh, osmolarity and a weekly positive MMP9 test. So what are the treatment options? I'm going to, you know, toss it out to this esteemed panel. Um, when you look at this patient, what do you typically think are your first go-to in somebody that you know, has been on cyclosporin, still symptomatic, and has um, a significant MGD. I think it, at this point, we really need to look at a lid procedure and uh, trying to clear up the lids and, and take a look at that mybum and see what uh, what that's looking and whether it's actually uh, functional or not, because we're looking at the mybography and we know the structure is bad, uh, but what does the function of it look when we, uh, when we express it? In these cases, they're always multifactorial and there are always so many things to do often simultaneously. And so I agree with Doug, a, a lid procedure makes a lot of sense to get the, the glands working a little bit better. Uh, you know, I like the, I love objective data uh, as I think we all do. And MMP9 is a, a fundamental test that I often do in, in all these ocular surface patients. And when I see a, a positive, whether it's weakly positive or strongly positive, I, if I see a red band, I know that these eyes are inflamed and I'm going to do whatever I can to get that inflammation decreased. And so this patient is already on a topical immunomodulator, but still MMP9 positive, which is often the case in these more advanced cases. So of course, in this case, I would also add 
a topical steroid in, in my practice, a, you know, a, a moderate potency uh, topical steroid for a week to two weeks to get that MMP9 hopefully turned negative. I think in this case, I would be thinking topical steroids combined with some kind of um, meibomian gland clearing treatment, whatever that might look like. I love it. We all think alike. So um, I, I also, if I see the MMP9 being elevated, feel compelled to add um, a topical steroid. And then for her gland clearance procedure, I actually chose um, combining Ilux and Blefex. Um, and we can go over these procedures, um, you know, in, in greater detail. I've got a few slides here, but I chose um, the Ilux uh, in particular because I like that with that treatment, you can actually titrate the pressure and actually see what's coming out. And in patients that have more moderate atrophy, you know, it can be a little more challenging to actually express that myelin out. Um, but I also chose to pair it with Blefex because of how her lid margin actually looked. If you remember, she had kind of that, you know, just that red layer, that, that kind of peeling, you know, yucky, <laughs> I know it's a very scientific term. Um, just that, that, you know, somewhat, um, it, it just looks like it needs to be cleaned properly is sometimes how I describe it to patients. Um, but I like, I like the combination of those two therapies because that combination of therapy really allows not only for, um, removal of that debris and keratinized tissue. That's really, you know, what that, um, film is, um, that's also leading to further inflammation. Um, but combining that with, you know, a device that has, um, excellent safety and efficacy for um, applying heat, um, as well as unblocking the glands. You know, there is direct visualization um, and control of the actual pressure um, that is placed. I want to say three or four, four weeks after, I usually check them back. Um, and so, you know, there's much less of that angry inflamed lid margin. Um, it's amazing how many patients actually have um, microscopic debris on their lid margin and on their lashes. And that really is not very friendly to the surface. Um, and it causes, and it can trigger a lot of that vascularity that we see. There's just a much better profile to the, the lashes. And then of course, to the lid margin, she did have an increased tear breakup time, um, almost doubled from four to eight. Um, she was less symptomatic. And so, you know, I think sometimes there's a synergistic effect um, with these procedures. And I think that, um, you know, we shouldn't be shy to combine um, lid margin debridement with the um, uh, heating and uh, obstruction relieving procedures. What's for you guys, what, what are your experiences with combining uh, these technologies or others? Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever done a LipiFlow or ILUX more recently uh, without doing some sort of debridement first. Uh, and I have been using the Blefex for a while now, and that, that is my go-to uh, micro blepharo exfoliation device. But I will, and I love doing these webinars and educational uh, events with optometrists and, opt and, and MDs and ODs, because I, I find I learn a lot of things and hear certain things that I never have heard before and, and, and sort of alter my practice. So the other day I was doing one, one of these with Scott Schachter and uh, Maria Markoulis, and we were talking about blepharo exfoliation, and they were saying how they sort of take a toque two, a, a blade or a golf stick and only debride right over the uh, uh, mybogian glands and never go past the line of marks. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking like, hmm, well, I'm not sure what the line of marks is. And I take this Blefex device every time I do this and just 
you know, debride the hell out of the entire, the lashes, the lids, the lid margin, and just wipe out everything I can see. And then I'm thinking, huh, am I, have I, have I been doing this wrong? Should I be more careful with uh, the Blefx device and sticking to just anteriorly or, or what? So I don't know, now that we have optometrists on here, what, what do you guys do? Are we making mistakes by using Blefx and wiping out the, the entire lid margin? Yeah, well, I, I, don't think, I don't think so at all, Chris. I think okay. that uh, you yeah. know, going, going forward uh, with that and getting up and, and over the line of marks is fine because we sometimes see such scalloping on that and that's going to uh, that's going to affect the tear foam. So, yeah, I don't uh, I don't stop shy of that either. Good. I think that maybe the maybe the thought there was the golf clubs, you know, the golf spud is a little bit um, has a sharper blade. Maybe they just don't want to cross that line of keratinization. But Blefex with you know, the way that Blefex works and the foam um, and the solution that we're soaking it in is pretty mild. I actually like to go just like you're doing through all the lashes, but then onto the meibomian gland orifice to really help break through that biofilm. Yeah, I think it's really important. I, mean, I think the Blefex is great for getting all that buildup on the lashes and the base of the lashes, the anterior lid margin. Sometimes there's Demodex there. Sometimes it's just scurf. Uh, but I agree that before doing any of these thermal pulsation uh, d uh, procedures, it is important to get the keratin and the uncap the meibomian glands so you can get that flow out. And I think the Blefex works pretty nicely, the golf spud and whatever your debridement uh, tool of choice is. But it does make a lot of sense to, to, to sort of scrape that uh, the MG uh, orifices. You know, not to mention just how you can... Um get the patients feeling better quickly. You know, the nice thing about Ilux is you do get an almost immediate response from patient symptoms, right? You know, right after you do that procedure. But if you're using something like Lipiflow in a case like this, you know that that symptom relief comes a little bit later down the, the line after the treatment. But when you pair it with something like micro exfoliation, they see it's, it's like leaving the dentist after not having been there for seven years and your mouth feels so much cleaner, <laughs> you know, so they like immediately feel just good. So, you know, I think if anything, when I'm in talks like these, I think to myself, who should I not be doing that treatment on, right? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I'm glad that you guys all are on the same page. And with that, we'll wrap up this case and go on to the next one. In this next case, Dr. Douglas DeVries shares a case where thorough treatment made all the difference for the patient's ocular surface prior to surgery. What I'm gonna talk about today is really surface optimization. Uh, and using thermal pulsation prior to cataract surgery. So, uh, you know, I've been in a uh, uh, in a referral center for the past 29 years that I helped co-found. And uh, with thermal pulsation, this is something that, you know, when you have patients that want to get to surgery as soon as possible, you can go through some of the other treatments that are going to take a little bit longer. We found this is the the fastest way to really get that surface optimized. Uh, to get the kind of readings that we want to get the patient to uh, to surgery as soon as possible. So this was a 67-year-old white female, bilateral cataracts, uh, speed score of 14. So that was up there pretty good. Osmolarity uh, uh, increase as well. And a mild uh, positive. So, and, and the mild on the inflammatory, that means it's... Uh, it's not just faint, but there's a definite color on there that you can look at pretty easily. And then we, of course, saw some staining, one plus central corneal staining, uh, looked at the diagnostic expression on this patient. So 
we were looking at both form and, uh, you know, structure and function and seeing that this patient had some really discolored mybum and decided that, you know, as we looked at mybography and we see some twisting, we see that. And, and I think it's really important that when you look at mybography, you also are still going to press on those mybomian glands to see the quality of the mybum because sometimes somebody can have good structure and they're inspensated and they just haven't converted yet at this point. Uh, to to really uh, dropping out at that point. So the mybography didn't look good. So what we decided to do was use the sustained ILUX thermal pulsation. It's so interesting because when we talked about the microblepharal exfoliation prior to, to me on any thermal pulsation, that's synonymous with we're going to do that first. Uh, and, you know, gone from the point of using a, a debrider to actually going on and using the, uh, the Bluffex uh, on that just because it does such a good job of opening those orifices and, and get the best possible. So what we did is after two weeks of treatment, we, uh, we repeated the uh, Osabina. And what I want to show is, uh, you know, the, what the mybum looked like and what happened is we were expressing, and you can just see this mybum wouldn't do any good at really holding that tear together and preventing evaporation. You can just see how thickened it is and the discoloration that we were getting. And it really, it matches up. And I like the idea that we can customize and really hit the mybomian glands that, that in mybography we feel are gonna be the most productive and then concentrate and stay on those until we get a good, a good expression. So I, I think through the, uh, the thermal expression, we we're very confident on that. And then uh, what we did is when we took and we repeated the OCBs and I'd just like to kind of go out instead of trying to find all the numbers in there. And basically the right eye changed from an IOL power of 15.5 to 14.5. So we had a diopter change as a result of optimizing the surface. In the left eye, we had a half a diopter change. And to me, that is just such real changes to the patient. If you can, if you can do that simple procedure. Now, of course, we were going to follow on. And we were going to use immunomodulary therapy on this patient and have them continue and put on a supplement. But my feeling was to get them to surgery as soon as possible because that's what the patient was wanting. Is let's try to optimize it and uh, do that. And we certainly had a difference. Any thoughts on uh, the surgical optimization? Well, you know, this is a topic that is certainly near and dear to uh, Priya and mine, our hearts, because we spent many years working on, uh, with the Ascaris Cornea Clinical Committee, working on this sort of area of ocular surface disease and cataract and refractive surgery and how to identify it, how to manage it preoperatively, how to, the, the visual impact. This is what we would call visually significant ocular surface disease because it certainly has an impact on vision, visual quality, visual performance and IOL planning, you know, which is critical and, and tantamount to the, the definition of, of visually significant. Um, so uh, I think this is a very important case. This is a case that we see that all surgeons and optometrists and people who co-manage see this every single day. Uh, and this, it's great that you identified this uh, prior to surgery, identified it as visually significant and you know treated it because as you saw that it dramatically changed the IOL calculation and the toric axis and you know and all of that translates to improved surgical outcomes and patient satisfaction postoperatively so it's a win it's a win win yeah i i agree completely chris i think that you know the one thing that still always stands out to me is that 
we spend a lot of time making sure we have good biometry that, you know, we're using femtosecond laser, aura, like all this advanced technology, but sometimes it's the simplest things like treating pre-existing ocular surface disease that really will actually, you know, make a meaningful difference. And, you know, a diopter is certainly meaningful, but even a half diopter, especially in our premium technology patients where residual refractive error of even a half diopter is a problem. So um, I think that, you know, whatever practices can do to start screening patients, um, you know, even using a questionnaire while patients are waiting to be dilated, I think is a great start. It doesn't have to be complicated. And certainly there are, you know, algorithms to help guide you. And I encourage everybody to look, look at them and see how you can incorporate it. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. It's just such actually, uh, you know, an honor to act to be doing this case actually with you, Dr. Gupta and Star, because I use the ASCRS guidelines now as my pre-surgical dry eye evaluation um, and have long since wanted something like that, you know, having had worked for a refractive surgeon many years ago and dealing with all of that post-surgical um, dry eye. So that, that resource is definitely um, very widely used, I, I think. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and wouldn't you agree, Leslie, that like, you know, especially even after refractive surgery, you know, if somebody's going to be unhappy about something, I feel like the unhappy people are mostly dry eye patients. And, you know, it seems like such a simple thing. It's not, you know, oh, they can't see through this technology or, oh, the laser didn't do what it was supposed to do. It's, it's, it's their surface. And sometimes the simplest things are really <laughs> worth spending time on. Absolutely. I actually just had a patient today that was a mono monovision um, cataract patient that has been unhappy this past year because of the monovision, although she showed up without glasses in the office. Okay. And that's what I said to her. Well, first of all, like, when do you wear your glasses? Never. But on her, you know, intake, she was high on her symptoms. She's saying, I feel my eyes all the time. I'm uncomfortable. And her surface was just filled with keratitis that was not being treated. So I'm actually hoping by rehabbing her surface, she'll actually appreciate the vision she was given with, with monovision. Yeah. 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 That's great. Right. And, and this is also the ocular surface and that central staining that Doug showed. I mean, it's so critical not only to IOL power uh, calcs, but also, you know, with, with a lot of these patients, whether they're getting a multifocal or just a monofocal toric, the axis of the astigmatism is so important to get right to, and, and that staining will throw that off so dramatically, like your data showed and before and after. And, there, and this has been published too in the peer-reviewed peer literature, how high osmolar hyperosmolarity and other ocular surface uh, abnormalities can lead to very wide-ranging uh, metrics when it comes to access and IOL power. Great. Well, shall we move on? Leslie Odell, the uh, next case is yours. In the final case, Dr. Leslie Odell discusses a case involving a symptomatic elderly woman with newfound light sensitivity and a prominent history. Okay. Um, so this was a patient that I had a few months ago now that came in with this complaint that she was unable to keep her eyes open. And 
we'll just walk through her history. So she was a 69 um, year old Caucasian female and just had noticed that over the past several weeks, she's been having all this light sensitivity, hard to keep her eyes open. So she's actually been limiting even how she's driving because she just doesn't feel you know, safe because she cannot keep the eyes open. She had a longstanding history of of, of dry eye disease. And actually I had seen her in another practice years prior. So she was diagnosed already with meibomian gland dysfunction and history of lipoflow, um, you know, a long time ago, 2013. She was using restasis in both eyes twice a day. She was on oral um, nutraceuticals with an omega-3 supplement, and she still was using a lot of lipid-based tears throughout the day. She had a lot of things that kind of were fueling her fire um, when it came to inflammatory reasons for dry eye. She was an RA patient, hypothyroid, medications, also contributing to some of her symptoms. But really, you know, I always like to kind of dig into the daily activities with patients um, because this is where our treatments can really improve quality of life. So for her, she was no longer doing things she liked. She wasn't reading in the evening. Um, she wasn't watching television. And then more concerning, like I said, of late was just her um, unwillingness to drive because of just the, this uh, um, inability to keep the eye open and the light sensitivity she had been dealing with. Um, so this was her, this was her exams. She also had a very high speed survey, and just like Priya was saying, um, and and Doug's case as well. Symptom surveys are so powerful. So speed twenty out of twenty eight. You know, obviously we need to do something to help this this patient feel better in her eyes. Um, hyperosmolarity with some asymmetry between her eyes. Positive inflammatory dry. Um, I like to grade the glands, counting the number of secreting glands. So if I'm counting 15 using that meibomian gland expressor, she was at zero for both eyes, even though she had a thermal pulsation treatment in her past. And then she actually presented with filaments on her cornea. So she was not an early entry into um, dry eye disease. Her one eye had severe keratitis, the other eye um, had filaments. So my first course of action was um, to actually compound the mucomus and get her started on that uh, to try to quiet down the filaments and improve the quality of her surface before really targeting her glands. But obviously that's something that needs to be done. Um, when she came back, the, she said that compound did the trick, which is just funny to hear her say that, but, you know, we had to send her out for, for that medication. Um, she, she could go outside. She actually drove herself to this appointment. We cut her speed survey in half just from that, but her inflammatory drive remained um, positive, still hyperosmolarity. Um, and then, you know, where do you kind of go from here? And that's where I would, I sort of say to you, um, for me, I was thinking about, you know, introducing my MG clearing treatments um, at this point, but what, what even would you be thinking about her, you know, with the restasis um, history with that inflammatory dry positive still? And, and Leslie, did you say that you did put an, uh, an amniotic membrane on uh, the eye? No, I started with... Um, mucomist, but on my okay. list, you know, was if I wasn't going to get anywhere with the resolution, I, that definitely was on my list, um, was amniotic and even um, regenerize. Yeah, she is not an ideal patient. I'm actually more, was more impressed with myself that I was able to do lipoflow in 2013 because she's has very tiny eyes too. So, you know, I think I could do Procara or something, but I was maybe a little, sometimes I say I get in my own way. <laughs> with managing the patient. Uh, 
Well, I think that's why I think it's great to have an option like ILUX now um, in those patients in whom you might not be able to get that uh, activator into a tight lid. I've had to I've had to cancel several lipid flows over the years because you know I'm pulling the eyelids and I just cannot get the damn thing in. But this is a patient. Um, obviously, there are a zillion things that you could do to help this patient, and usually it's going to take a zillion things to get a patient like this feeling better. It sounds like you're off to a great start. She's feeling better. She's more functional, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, I think, you know, anytime I see a filament in my practice, I will uh, take a dry, a Wexel, a dry spear, surgical spear, Wexel, whatever it is, and and just touch the base of those of those filaments, and they'll come right off, and you don't have to uh, take the risk of a sharp object like a forcep or something that might, if the patient moves, you might ding the cornea or create an epithelial defect. So the dry wet cells are great for these. I always remove them. They often do come back if it's not adequately treated and it is hard to adequately treat these. You know, and you're doing, mucomist is something I do use often. Uh, there is some evidence that uh, Muro or, uh, can, can work, Muro ointment at night, Muro drops during the day with, for uh, decreasing the mucus. Um, and of course, treating the dry eyes, increasing aqueous production. Usually with the filaments, there's a mismatch between mucin and over, muc uh, over mucin production, less aqueous. And your patient has, I think, two autoimmune conditions. So right there, she's a setup for uh, uh, aqueous deficient dryness, as well as evaporative dryness, hybrid dryness. So plugs, I think, would be a reasonable thing to do. You probably did that. Um, and um, and a, a lip procedure. and. Regenerize and serum tears and amniotic membrane Just about and PCLs. Yeah, I mean, I think the best case because everything fits here. Yeah, but um, these so patients, we, but these patients need that aggressive, you know, that aggressive multifaceted treatment. I mean, they yeah, need I it. Think and I think also, you know, what's nice about, you know, ILUX and, you know, all of our treatments is you compare them together to get ultimate success. So um, I think ultimately for her, after we cycle through um, some IPL treatments to just help control some of that lid inflammation and, and then pair that with IPL, she should be continuing to feel a whole lot better as well. But what's interesting is a lot of times I feel and why I wanted to kind of go the route of a complicated case like this is a lot of times you might just stall in the cornea, I feel like, and just keep trying to target the inflammation there without realizing this woman, you know, has no functional glands. You know, if you don't try to open the, the meibomian glands, the keratitis will continue to persist and, and cause problems for you. Something I do a little differently, uh, now, uh, really within the last year than, uh, before is, uh, also, with this severity looking for uh, and do corneal sensitivity testing to find out how much neurodown regulation that's really had and is this is this like a uh, a stage one a Mackey stage one neuro neurotrophic keratitis uh, that we have going there and uh, and I think the only way to really do that is you know look at a lot of and test sensitivity on a lot of corneas to tell especially in something like this it might be bilateral is when you actually have that that down regulation yeah, and on the flip side of that, I was in this case, you know, when I see when I have patients who have that extreme photophobia, which certainly can be explained from the by the filaments and the and the PEE and the severe dry eyes uh, and filamentary keratitis, but I also start thinking uh, uh, a neuropathic pathway as well. Uh, and this would be a great patient to not only check corneal sensation to see if it's reduced. And and I did just learn recently that people can have neuropathic and neurotrophic 
keratitis at the same time, which is a, a mind blower uh, for, from a diagnostic perspective, but it can, can happen. But this is another patient where I would put, do the, the uh, preparacane test, put in a drop of preparacane and see if she still has symptoms uh, of sensitivity or, or discomfort or pain. And I would almost bet that this patient would probably have a component of a neuropathic pain, which is why she's so intensely photophobic and in such pain. And then of course you get into things like gabapentin and naltrexone and, and those types of uh, CNS uh, pain treatments. I love hearing all the comments. I was just gonna um, say that, you know, sometimes our autoimmune patients, you know, we automatically assume that they just have aqueous deficiency and, you know, you can put Sjogren's in this bucket, RA. Yeah. I mean the whole gamut mixed connective tissue, but often it's just the chronic inflammation is causing widespread, you know, destruction. And that's why, you know, this, unfortunately for this patient, you know, everything's impacted and why you have put everything on the differential of things that we can use to treatment, uh, to treat this patient. And I agree with all of the treatments you've listed. And um, I kind of take the same approach, Leslie, where I go bit by bit, I start with what's going to work fastest to, okay, you know, when, like, what's urgent, emergent, and then, you know, kind of piece our way through it. But you setting her expectations for that and telling her, you know, hey, you've got a lot of things going on. And, and I find explaining to the patient how the impact, how their autoimmune disease is impacting their eye is really important because they don't always think of their eyes as, you know, a source of issues related to autoimmune disease. So um, kudos to you for all those treatments. And hopefully she actually <laughs> turns the corner and continues to stay well controlled. Yeah, these I, I love these complicated cases, and, and I, you know it's 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 a it's an example of why a lot of doctors sort of shy away from dealing with these patients because it is complicated. It's very complicated from a diagnostic perspective because it's multifactorial, and there are lots of different diagnoses that you have to make and then treat each one you know, specifically, and that's complicated and it takes a lot of time uh, in the office to explain it all and to set expectations appropriately and go through the risks and benefits of all the various things. So these things take a while, but the reward is that you can really, truly, really help these people. And these people are often the ones who have seen a zillion doctors before they've seen you. They're desperate. They are. Their their uh, quality of life is is just severely decreased. They're depressed. You know, some have suicidal thoughts and things like that. And you know, you take the time like you did and do all the right things, and you know, show empathy and and really and you know, it's it's life changing for these people. So these are great cases. I want to thank everybody for presenting and, and having a vibrant discussion. Thank you to our panel for an engaging and informative discussion. And thank you for listening.